Ryan is going to be speaking from 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'll put it up here. Um, I was, if, you, if you want to just look at, uh, just look at him um, and, and you have your own Bible to follow along, that's fine. Uh, what you can do is up in the, I'm going to share my whole screen here. Uh, I don't know if you can see the box where the pictures are, but up at the very top of the box where the pictures are on the right-hand side, it's where mine are, you'll see a little line, and then you'll see a bigger, a fatter, a broader line. If you click on that, that's going to show the person who is, uh, who is speaking. Actually, it's showing Ryan right now when I click on it. And then you have the two line that like, looks like an equal sign. You can click on that, and then you have the, the nine dots there as well. You want to do the one that is a broader, a broader line, and then you can actually expand that. You can grab the corner and pull it, and you can expand Ryan's picture so you can, uh, you can see all the wrinkles on his face. And all my not, gray hair. Not quite. And all his gray hair. So, so anyway, you can make the picture uh, larger. You don't have to just look at a, a stamp of him. <laughs> Thanks, Jared. You're welcome. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, turn off my camera and uh, maybe, let's see. <clears throat> we'll hear from Ryan. Go ahead, Ryan. Well, happy first fruits to you all. Some of you are familiar with that. That's usually the way I will greet folks on Easter Sunday is saying happy first fruits to you. And some people look at me with an odd questioning look when I say that, but let me explain it a little bit. Our Messiah Jesus died for our sins on Passover. And on the third day, the day of the Feast of First Fruits, when that's celebrated, early that Sunday morning, at the very same time that the priests were in the temple offering up the first fruits of the harvest, Jesus rose from the dead and offered himself as our atonement for sin. And he became the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. And we read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> so happy first fruits to you all. That's the biblical way to say Happy Easter to you all. And as I was thinking and praying on uh, Easter this week and the resurrection, and, you know, there's so many things to say about Easter and the resurrection, my heart and my mind kept going to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 is a beautiful place to see what the resurrection is what we have in our lives because of it, and what result the resurrection should have in our lives. And so go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, if you're not there already. And you'll see major themes of the Bible here in 1 Peter chapter 1. We see salvation, and we see faith, and hope, and love. And these, these are things that we, we deeply need, especially in these, these days and in these times. And so let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1 together today. As we explore the greatness of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and what it means for us in our lives today. You know, I'm thankful, Jared, the way you opened up today. It, it flows right in with what I was hoping for in this message is, you know, what does the resurrection mean for us? In our lives today. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and we'll just work through it line by line, verse by verse as our, 
as we usually do here at Living Hope. First Peter chapter one starts verse one this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And we'll stop there for just a moment. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter's writing to the believers who are in modern-day Turkey. And they, he calls them exiles, strangers, pilgrims, or sojourners, temporary residents, or aliens, or foreigners, or however you want to say that. You know, I looked at probably eight different translations of this chapter, and you can see different words used for that one Greek term, but that's the, the spirit of it here is that they're strangers or pilgrims, temporary residents in that land. Now, the point here is that these believers were in a situation where they were not at home, but, <clears throat> but they actually were at home, but not in a spiritual sense. They're exiles not because they're displaced from their homeland necessarily, but because they suffer for their faith in a world that finds faith in Jesus insulting and strange. You know, Mike, you picked up on that in your prayer request earlier. You know, your neighbor sees faith in Jesus as probably insulting and strange and all this church stuff. Like, I'm not comfortable with that. They're not good with that. And so Peter talks to these folks as exiles and... <coughs> pilgrims and strangers in that land and they're there in a spiritual sense they're that way and that's one of the crucial ideas of the letter that God's people are pilgrims on the earth they really have no place of rest in this world you know we're even told to be in the world but not of the world you know we are elect exiles chosen for a citizenship in God's kingdom as his children, and we are no longer at home here in this world. Those of us who believe in Jesus, you know, we felt that discomfort. You know, Mike, you probably felt it in conversations with your neighbor, and they're not comfortable, you're not comfortable. You kind of feel this discomfort of not being at home here in the world, you know, at various times. Some of us have felt it in our work situations. Some of us have felt it in our communities, or maybe even in our school situations. But you, you feel that at times in this world. And it's felt even stronger in places where believers are persecuted for their faith, like, you know, communist China or in areas where Islam is the government and the government's controlled by Islam and uh, Christians suffer greatly. They suffer great persecution because of their faith. They're just not home in this world. And so we see that open up in in those first three verses. So that's, that's Peter. He's the Apostle Peter, and he's writing to these pilgrims, these elect exiles in modern-day Turkey <clears throat> who have been chosen for salvation by God. Look at verse 3. It's a very familiar verse to us here at Living Hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, God is to be blessed and praised for the salvation he's given us. He has caused us to be born again. Think about that. He has caused us to be born again. No one ever takes credit for being born. It's something that happens to us. It is the same with our spiritual birth. It happens to us. God makes it happen to us by his grace. He gives us faith to believe. God is the one who causes us to be born again. And because of this new birth, we have three things. You can see them right here in the, the passage that I just read. We have three things because of this new, new birth. We have a living hope, verse 3. We have an inheritance, verse 4. And we have protection and salvation by God's power through faith. That's verse 5. So let's look at each of these, verse 3. We have this living hope. A living hope is one that's genuine and vital in contrast to a hope that's empty or in vain. These folks Peter was writing to, they were suffering great persecution, yet they are not dashed to the ground by their troubles. They look to the future with a sure and confidence that great blessing awaits them. And this confidence isn't based on empty superstition. It's grounded in and secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Their hope is, the is of the resurrection and triumph over death. So whatever happens to them in this world because of their persecutions and their sufferings, that's just trivial compared to the blessing of the future resurrection. And the word living here connects the hope to the resurrection. So our living hope is in the living Savior, Jesus Christ, and through his resurrection from the dead. Hope in Jesus is alive. And that's the living hope that we have that's talked of here in verse 3. Look at verse 4. We also have an inheritance. In the Old Testament, the inheritance is the land God promised to his people. And Peter understood the inheritance but no longer in terms of a land promised to Israel. Now it's in terms of the end time hope that lies before believers. This hope is still physical though, as we learn from second Peter and the revelation of John, that it will be realized in a new heaven and a new earth. We see that in second Peter three and revelation 21. This transcends and leaves behind the promised land of Palestine. Now admit, let somebody in here. Hold on just a second. There we go. Okay. Yes. Say amen to that. It transcends the promised land of Palestine. Revelation 21 is a beautiful picture of this, and it's a, it's a passage that I love to meditate on. Revelation 21 says this, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we will dwell with God and will be his people in that place. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. There will only be righteousness there. And there will be a day when we are in that place. 
and all the burdens of this world will be swept away. And we'll see Jesus face to face in that place. In John 14, Jesus tells us that he has gone there before us to make a place for us and that he will come again and take us there himself so that we can be with him forever. And when this happens, we will have resurrected, glorified bodies like Jesus. Now that is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you and for me. No moth or rust will ever destroy it, and it won't fade away. It's kept for us and guarded for us in heaven. So we have an inheritance, verse 4. Look at verse 5. We also have protection and salvation by God's power through faith. That is why he is to be blessed and praised. He has given us salvation and a new life. We have been rescued from God's judgment and wrath. Our salvation is guarded by God's power through faith. Yes, we will experience suffering in this world and hardship. But nothing, mark this, nothing can take away your salvation through faith in Christ. Nothing. It is guarded by God's infinite power. You know, Martin Luther wrote this, you know, the body they may kill, but they cannot take your salvation. Never. It's guarded by God's infinite power. God gives us faith to believe in Christ and be saved. God's power guards that faith for all eternity. And this faith and hope are precious gifts of God. And he strengthens believers so that they persist in their faith and hope until the day we obtain our inheritance. Now, these are amazing truths. We have a living hope, an inheritance, salvation, all given to us by the Lord. Amazing truths. Now, let's look at the results of these truths in our lives. You know, these truths are amazing, and they impact the way we live. They have an impact directly on the way we live. Let's look at verses 6 through 9, and we're going to see in verses 6 through 9 our glorious joy, even in the midst of suffering. Look at verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you. Through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. 
things which angels long to look. You see, brothers and sisters, our faith and salvation in Christ results in great and glorious joy in our lives. And I hope you feel that great and glorious joy this Easter morning. We love and we believe and rejoice in Jesus even though we have never seen him. You think about that. We love and believe and rejoice in Jesus and we have never seen him. That's faith. And this love and faith and joy is so strong that it persists even in difficult trials and sufferings in our lives. In verses six and seven, we see the comparison of suffering in our lives to gold being refined and tested by fire. It's as if the suffering and the trials, that's like the furnace of our lives and the fire in our lives. And the suffering causes us to, to get on our knees and go deeper into our faith and walk with Christ. We cry out to God and we call on the name of Jesus in those times of suffering, don't we? In the times of fatness and prosperity, we tend to kind of, you know, look the other way. It's like, oh, thanks, Jesus. Everything's good. Thank you. Things are great. We praise you. Things are so great. But I tell you, when, when we're suffering, when we're in the thick of it, we're on our knees crying out to God and weeping from our souls. And it's in that furnace that God purifies our character and builds us up and strengthens our faith as he hears our cries and answers our prayers. It's in those times we desire holiness and a right walk with God, more so than in the times of fatness and plenty. You've probably experienced that in your life. I know I have. Oh, yeah. The grossness of sin is squeezed out of us, just as the impurities are removed from gold that melts in the furnace. This great salvation was written of by the prophets of old. You can see that in verse 10. Moses wrote of a prophet greater than he that would come and save the world. Jesus is that prophet. He is the Messiah. That's Isaiah, right. Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the others, I all wrote about Jesus, all for our benefit. <laughs> Praise God for that. And so we see in verses 6 through 9, our great and glorious joy, even in suffering. Look at verse 13. We're told to set our hope on God's grace. Let's set our hope on God's grace. It says, therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're into grammar and things like that, I know my kids love grammar, don't you guys? Oh, yeah. There are two participles here followed by an imperative. First, you set your hope fully on the grace of God by preparing your mind for action. That's what the text says. It literally means gird up the loins of your mind. It's an image of girding up the loins, meaning that one tucks in your long robe. So they would wear these long robes in those days. And when they, were, when they needed to get ready for action, either to run or to fight or do something very active, they would gird up those loins. They would tuck them all in so they'd be ready for action. 
may be ready for serious work. And so you set your hope fully on the grace of God by getting your mind ready for action. It, it, it occurs in your mind. And the second way you set your hope fully on the grace of God is by being sober-minded. This isn't simply a reference to not being drunk. No, there's a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God, that is numbed by the attractions of this world. And when people are numbed into this spiritual drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself, and they only concentrate on fulfilling their earthly desires. And so even in the trials that we face today, you know, we need to have our minds ready for action. We need to be sober-minded and sober in spirit and to set our hope fully on God. You know, you can feel this sometimes. You can be sitting at your desk like, you know, I do and I work from home and you can start looking at the news or you can start, you know, just becoming depressed in your spirit, thinking about all the difficulties in the world. And your mind tends to wander through that. And before you know it, it's this kind of vicious spiral downward. And then I have to pull myself out of it and say, no, Lord, no. I'm going to set my hope fully on God. That, that occurs in the mind and in the spirit. And so that's what Peter's writing to us here today. Set our hope fully on God in Christ. And to do so, gird up the loins of your mind for action. Don't be lulled down into that trap. And don't be numb to the spirit by all of the different things of this world. They're all fruitless and wasteful. <clears throat> so when we gird up our mind for action and are sober-minded, we can set our hope fully on the grace of Christ, even in great persecution and in great trials and sufferings. Look at verse 14. Here in verses 14 through 21, we're commanded to walk in holiness and fear. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. You see the full picture of the gospel here, don't we? He's like a precious lamb whose blood was shed and who has been raised from the dead and given glory. And so because of those truths, be holy in all your conduct. You see, when you set your hope completely on the grace of Christ that will be brought to you at his coming, that means that you will live a holy life now. He says, don't be conformed to your former way of living in sin. Put that away. You're no longer a slave to sin. We can read about that in Romans 6. 
Turn from those passions of the flesh. You're no longer ignorant of the grace and salvation of Christ. You know the depth of his mercy and love, and you know that he redeemed you with his precious blood shed on that cross. He didn't simply write a check and pay for your redemption with silver and gold. No, no, no. No way. He took the full wrath of God that you deserve and I deserve for our sins on himself when he bled and died on that cross. Jesus is that perfect Passover lamb, the lamb of God whose blood cleanses us from all our sins. Now you know and believe these amazing truths, so Peter's telling us now act like it. Act like you know these things. You should be holy because God is holy. You're a child of God, adopted into his family. Act like it. It should affect our behavior. It should affect our thinking. The resurrection affects our daily lives. We're a child of God, adopted into his family. Let's act like precious children of God. Look at verse 7. I find this also be very interesting. Verse 17, sorry. He says, also, we're supposed to walk in reverent fear. And we have here a reference to final judgment, where believers will be judged by their works, and heaven and hell will be at stake. Now, a genuine fear of judgment, it really hinders believers from giving into their formal, lustful passions. When you're living every day, knowing that judgment is coming, knowing that everyone will be judged according to his deeds, it impacts the way you act and think. Believers are to live in such a state of fear while they're strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Now, he gives this image also as, you know, as God as father, but he's also God as judge. And what's remarkable here is that God's tenderness and love as father is mingled with his judgment and the fear that should mark Christians in this world. And, and Peter didn't have any trouble with that. He didn't think those two themes negated each other whatsoever. He, he actually writes them as complementary. So the relationship we have with God is both a tender relationship and also an awesome relationship. You know, think about it in your own life. And, you know, the children here listening will identify with this real quickly. You know, don't you act differently when dad's watching? Of course you do. <laughs> you know, when dad's not around, you'll try to get away with all kinds of things, perhaps. Uh, it's like, oh, no, but I'm not going to get caught, or it's, it's okay, I can say this, you know, I can say things I probably shouldn't say, I can do things I shouldn't say. But then when dad shows up on the scene, everyone's kind of toeing the line a little bit straighter. There's, there's this love for dad and father, and they love the, the, the time and the fellowship with, with dad and father, but there's also this reverent fear that, hey, man, if I wander outside the boundaries, Dad's going to pull me back in, and, and sometimes it might not feel good. So I'm a little more on the alert. I'm a little more careful in the way I walk and the way I live and the way I talk when, 
when dad's watching and when dad's around. And so that's what Peter's talking about here. God loves you as a father. He caused you to be born again. You were adopted into his family as a child. Now live your life in holiness and with a reverent fear that we're all going to be judged for our deeds and that day is coming. And the way that we live and the way that we talk and the way that we think matters because of the resurrection from the dead. <clears throat> Finally, let's look at verses 22 and 23. And here we close with the command to love each other. The command to love each other. Verse 22 says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly, from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Verse 24, for all flesh is like grass, and all is glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And you are able, and you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's John 13, 34. Over and over again, Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another over and over again. And didn't they always seem to fall back into bickering and prideful discussions of who was greatest and all these things? And Jesus would correct them and he'd tell them over and over again, just love each other, love each other. You know, the greatest command of all is to love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, eight says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Any other commandment are all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Here we're commanded once more to love one another here in 1 Peter and to do it deeply from a pure heart. I think it's interesting that he says that. This isn't a superficial love that goes through the motions of pretending. We've all probably done that at certain points of our lives or been on the receiving end of that at certain parts of our life. It's just superficial. They're going through the motions. They're pretending. It's not sincere. And so you know it. No, this love is deep, and it's from a pure heart. It comes from the heart outward. And you can do this because you've been born again. That's how you can love your neighbor as yourself, because you've been born again. 1 Peter 4.8 tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. You know, so, so often it, it's hard to love our neighbor as ourselves because when Jesus taught this, he gave the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
because someone asked, you know, who is my neighbor? And so the Samaritans were the enemies of the Jews. They were hated. They were disgusting to the Jews. And so he gives an illustration. Your, your neighbor is, is everyone, even your enemy. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. My word, that's so difficult. Human flesh can't do that. You can't do that just out of human nature. No, you need supernatural power to do that. You can love your enemies, and you can love your neighbor, and you can love your brother because you've been born again right. and because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this is a deep love from the heart. And this basis for our love is salvation through, the, through faith in the gospel. Love is the goal of conversion. When we are born again, love from a pure heart flows naturally out of us. And he quotes here uh, in verses 24 and 25, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6. Isaiah here proclaims comfort to Israel because God will work once again to restore them from their exile in Babylon. The Israelites have been dispersed. They've been exiled into Babylon. And so Isaiah is writing to them to comfort them in their time of exile in Babylon. And just as God worked to restore Israel from their exile in Babylon, he will also work to gather us home to live with him in his kingdom when Christ comes again. And he is coming again to take us where he is. The resurrection of Jesus is the first example of this. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead, spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15. And as we suffer trials, brothers and sisters, in this time of avoiding this COVID-19 virus, let's remember that God hears our prayers and he knows our sufferings just like he heard the prayers and cries of his people in Egypt, just as he heard the prayers and cries of his people exiled in Babylon, he hears our prayers and cries even in our times of suffering today. Yeah. And we can experience a living hope in our souls through faith in Jesus Christ that transcends any suffering or trial we feel here during this pilgrimage on earth. We, like the believers in Turkey that, that Peter was writing to, we are sojourners here on earth as well. We're exiles, living as exiles in this place. And there are many people suffering right now, all around us that have little or no hope. Their whole lives have been turned upside down. <clears throat> Some have family or friends who are suffering or maybe even dying. Let's set our hope on God's grace in these days. And let's share the love and living hope that we have in Jesus with others. Let's tell them the about the living hope we have through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus is the hope of the world. And faith and hope in him will never disappoint or fade away. Right. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. The uh, 